Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. <clears throat> Our friend Marcus Grodi and the uh, Coming Home Network have published uh, a wonderful collection of uh, convert stories called From Atheism to Catholicism. And uh, among the, those who contributed to this is uh, Dr. Holly Ordway. She's been with us before on this program. Uh, Holly was raised in a non-religious home for years, actually was an atheist in academia, and she thought, you know, faith was nothing more than superstition. Uh, Well-educated, but didn't have any use for Christianity, thought it was superficial, shallow, uh, trivial. But her views uh, of faith began to change when she studied the writings of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, one of, uh, one of the great uh, fantasy writers of the 20th century. She also began studying the great Christian poets, and this started her down a path that eventually led her to the Catholic Church. Uh, Holly right now is a professor of English and uh, a f- member of the faculty in uh, apo- the apologetics program at Houston Baptist University. Uh, her journey from atheism to Christ is told in her book, Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. But like I said, she's also contributed a chapter in this new volume uh, of nine convert stories called From Atheism to Catholicism, published by EWTN. Holly, good to have you back. It's my pleasure to be on. You know, when last time we talked, I don't know if you were at Houston Baptist University. How long have you been there? Uh, five years now, actually, so I probably was, yeah. um, if we talked when uh, Marcos Type came out. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you know Lou Marcos there? I do, yeah. yeah. He does uh, really good work. Yeah, he's an old friend of mine. When he was, he was, We met when he was, I think, doing his doctoral work at U of M uh, many, many, many years ago. So, But he's been out with me on the program a number of times as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your upbringing. You were raised in a non-religious home. How non-religious? Was it hostile to Christian faith? No, actually, not hostile. And I think that's an important thing to note, because a lot of people tend to think, if I'm an atheist, then I must hate Christianity right. from, you right. know, from the cradle. Um, but I would actually say, you know, looking back, that my upbringing was sort of vaguely culturally Christian, mm-hmm. in that there were things like... Um, Playing Christmas carols on the stereo at Christmas time, yeah. and actually having a nativity scene, uh, and there was no talk against religion. There just wasn't any practice of it whatsoever. Yeah. And I learned many, many years later that my parents um, do believe in God, um, and they had taken the attitude of, "We'll just let you decide for yourself," um, mm-hmm. which was well intentioned, um, but. Unfortunately, what I quite naturally concluded was that if it's something that we don't talk about, it's not important. And if it's not important, it can't possibly be true, because if it were true, we'd talk about it. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, just not talk. Omitting it uh, implies that it's insignificant or not real. Yeah. Uh, but this is a good point, because you, so y- you were raised kind of in a practical atheist context, not an ideological atheist context. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And of course, that set me up to become an ideological atheist, because then I, I went away to college. When I started college, went to a you know, very good public university, UMass Amherst. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't start out 
thinking, oh, Christianity is stupid, but I became surrounded by many, many people who did think that. Now, in retrospect, there were, you know, Christians on campus. There was a, there was a Catholic Newman Center there. I had no, I didn't even know they were there. Um, yeah. And I was just, since I didn't have any reasons to think that religion in general or Christianity in particular was worth considering, I didn't even bother to push back against my friends and professors who said, oh, yeah, it's superstition. Yeah. It's much easier to just say, oh, yeah, right, all the smart people think that. <laughs> right. Now, I'm curious how, <clears throat> just want, I want to stay with you a little bit longer on this, moving from pr- this kind of vague, practical atheism to a committed atheistic position. How committed an atheist did you become as you went through graduate school? I would say pretty committed. I was really convinced that atheism was was true. Were you you reading on it? I had a soul. Were you actually reading on it? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. I was reading some on it. Um, Mostly, you know, the atheists who were confirming my my, right. <laughs> my beliefs. Um, I wasn't actually reading any anything that challenged it, but I was reading, you know, the the you know Dawkins and and so on, sure. the, the atheist writers, and thinking, yeah, right on, right on, man. Mm-hmm. Oh, idiots! I'm so smart. <laughs> <laughs> but I tried to be consistent. I mean, I really, it was actually quite a depressing um, worldview because it mean, meant that things are meaningless. Right. That I was just going to dissolve out of existence. Um, but. I did. I, I really did think that it was true because I, I really didn't have any awareness of the real substance or depth of the Christian alternative. Right. My only exposure to Christianity that I knew of in, in person, not from poets and authors, but in person, my only exposure to Christianity was like street corner preachers yeah. or really pushy campus evangelists, which just made me kind of revolted. Yeah, yeah. not very so attractive. That really pushed me into this. No, not at all. Um, although, you know, as you noted, all along I had this counter witness of these great poets, these great authors who were Christians, um, who kept me from completely shutting the door on this whole idea, even though I, I didn't realize how much they were actually working on me. Um, I thought that my path as an atheist was crystal clear, right. um, except, of course, for these questions I couldn't quite resolve about meaning and purpose and all that and morality. But I just kind of shoved those, you know, under the rug as much yeah. as I could. Let me let me stay with those a little longer here. Uh, so you're um, by by that point, you're consciously a materialist, right? Yes. Okay. So how did you? <clears throat> I mean, you're also uh, developing an academic career. You know that telling the truth is important, uh, right? I mean. Um, you probably you sound like you probably had some you know basic morality why why tell the truth why be moral um if in fact when all is said and done there's really no ultimate purpose how did you live with well, that well exactly that yeah. That is exactly the question that got under my skin, mm-hmm. because I did have a profound sense of morality. Yeah. Um, my, my actually living out of it was pretty weak and feeble, but I was really <laughs> clear that there is good and there is evil. Right. And it's, you know, it's God's grace. He kept me out of serious trouble. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I was aware that there was a difference. Um, I was very convinced that the truth mattered. Yep. But if you pushed me on it, I couldn't have given you a reason why. Yeah. 
And, you know, where did this morality come from? You know, I'm perfectly going to concede that atheists can live a life that's outwardly moral. Sure. But oh, why? Um, yes. Why bother? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the problem isn't why, that you know, they I, live it or hold the position. The problem is how do they justify uh, living the moral exactly. life? Exactly, and yeah. I couldn't. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I couldn't justify it. I also was really drawn to beauty, and I found literature deeply meaningful, but that, again, was really hard to square with a purely materialistic um, paradigm. Yeah. You know, yeah. what's the point of storytelling? Um, and those are the kinds of things that kept me a little bit raw, a little bit uneasy, and and I think eventually willing to consider it when I finally got to the point of, of recognizing that these authors that I loved so much were yeah, – they were so Christian, yeah. and they yeah. were not idiots. So – it finally made me think, I at least want to find out what it is that they believe. Mm-hmm. How many years were you in that uh, ideological atheist period and troubled by this, what seemed to be internal contradictions? A few years? Oh, I'd, I'd probably say a good 10 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, you okay. know, it was, a, it was a long stretch of time. Um, yeah. You know, my, my story is one of, of, I think, slow change and... <laughs> I think it's important to recognize that these things don't happen suddenly. Yeah. Hold it there, Holly. We'll come back. My guest, uh, Dr. Holly Ordway, uh, she's contributed a chapter in the new uh, volume, From Atheism to Catholicism, published by EWTN. Again, forward with our friend Marcus Grodi. Holly's uh, told her story in that uh, format, and there's also the much longer format called Not God's Type. I'm Al Cresta. This week at AveMariaRadio.net's Poll of the Week, we want to know what is your favorite Summer Olympic event. Let us know now by going to AveMariaRadio.net, scrolling down on the homepage and clicking Poll of the Week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Holly Ordway. She is the author of Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms. That's the uh, book published by Ignatius. Also... There's a, a, a concise uh, version of it in the new book, From Atheism to Catholicism, which is a look at nine converts explaining uh, their journey home. You, so you're a materialist, uh, an atheist, but you do believe that truth is important. You do believe that uh, there is a right, a moral way to live. There's a difference between good and evil. And as somebody studying literature and loving the great poets, you began, as you write, uh, you were running against the grain. Um, the other thing that was running against the grain of my materialist worldview was literature. Lewis and Tolkien had given me as a child a glimpse of a reality more meaningful than just what I could see and touch. And then in college, I majored in English literature. And uh, you go on to read the great poets, uh, Shakespeare, John Donne, G.S. Eliot, Gerard Manley Hopkins. How did you develop, I'm just curious, how did you explain to yourself why these theistic and often Christian writers had an appeal to you? What was it that they had that you loved, resonated with? 
Well, that's a, it's a good question, and it's one that I would not have been able to answer at the time. Um, at the time, I, mean, I even wrote my, my, my doctoral dissertation on fantasy and centered it on Tolkien, um, you know, <laughs> oh, a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Very strange thing for an atheist to do. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I was, I was one of the things um, C.S. Lewis writes about um, in his memoir, he talks about his conflict as a, as a young atheist. And he describes himself as being divided into two hemispheres. Yep. Um, the one, the atheism that he thought was true but was dead and dry, and all of what he thought was fantasy and the unreality that was the living and vibrant part. He didn't see the connection until much later. And that really describes my my imaginative life. I was really drawn to you know the the world of Narnia, of Middle Earth. It was mm-hmm. beautiful. It was meaningful. But if you'd pushed me on it, I would have said, ah, it's just a story. You know, there's, it's just, I just like it because I like it. Um, But there really was something deeper in there. And I think it's that Lewis and Tolkien presents a picture that's fundamentally true. It's congruent with reality, the fullness of reality, not my shallow atheist slice of it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what drew me in. Um, And this sense of complexity that, I mean, especially I found Tolkien especially meaningful because, you know, the Lord of the Rings, the characters go through a lot yeah. to suffer. You know, this isn't a trite little, oh, you know, every the good triumphs, you know, with barely right. scratch. No, there's suffering, there's loss, and that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just curious, did you like the movies? I did, actually. Okay. Um, I think that the the films, I think, they're not perfect, yeah. um, but I think they do a pretty good job. Um, I, however, I, that's totally different from the Hobbit films. The Hobbit films are a travesty. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think the Lord of the Rings films, I think we're, we're pretty well done. Okay, um, good. No, I, just, just, I always like to ask people, especially people, literary uh, people, what they thought of them because... Uh, when they, when they, Peter Jackson originally decided to do it, there was, you know, big debate over whether he could really capture it or not. And uh, I think the, I think the consensus is that he did a great job. So, I was curious to know what your opinion was on it. Uh, back, back to this, your the appeal, the appeal of writers uh, like Gerard Manley Hopkins and Lewis and Tolkien and John Donne. So did you think of their, that appeal? Did you come to think that their, the reason they appealed to you is because they spoke to, who, to you in, authentic, in an authentic human way? In other words, were they speaking to your nature, who you were as a person? I think I would have I would have tried to, to frame it in terms of, of basic human kind of human needs. I remember trying to um, reframe my response to some of Dunn's holy sonnets in terms of like you know basic human longing for meaning or human longing mm-hmm. for love. Well, he's writing he's writing about God. Now I was extrapolating that, trying to make it work, and and because you know Francis Dunn is such a great poet, mm-hmm. you actually can get quite a lot of meaning from the poem, even if you kind of reapply the, the meaning of his poem in a more general way. He has a lot that does apply just to the human nature kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of can't get around the fact that the poems are really related to God. Yes. Um, or, you know, Hopkins, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, the wind hover to Christ our Lord. 
So there was always a sort of tension between, on the one hand, the beauty of the poem, the language, the imagery that I could relate to, you know, just in my, you know, non-Christian way, and this further level that I could see that they had. And this is one of the things I think, you know, it's really important to nourish Christian artists, because you can only have this kind of compelling response for a reader if the work is really good. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, half-baked Christian poetry doesn't do it. You've got to have really knockout great poetry. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to write poetry. I mean, I'm a poet. I've got mm -hmm. actually 10 poems in my new apologetics book, so I'm trying to model oh. it insofar as I can. Very good. Um, it's called Apologetics in the Christian Imagination, by the way. Just throwing it out there. Yeah, no, um, good. But uh, it's hard. It's hard work. And I think we, we need to really encourage Christian writers and Christian artists to do the work so you can have these poems that can work for the modern reader the way that, for instance, Hopkins did for me. First drawn to it as a poem or first drawn to it as a story like Narnia or mm -hmm. uh, The Lord of the Rings. And then it kind of gets the hooks in and I'm like, oh, OK, now what's going on? That's what we need. Yeah. Uh, is it true that in order to get great poetry, though, we have to endure a lot of bad poetry? I mean, that's sort of true of any, anything. Yeah. Anytime you've got people doing something, right. you're going to have lots of amateur efforts. <laughs> right. um, you know, that, that's just the nature of the game. Um, yeah. But I think if we encourage people to, to work hard at it, mm -hmm. then I think the proportion of good to rubbish will increase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is always a tension between affirming a person in their aspirations and being properly critical of their product. <laughs> so... Uh, that's why I bring that up. Yeah. I mean, I teach a creative writing class um, at HBU. Oh, well, you know that. that's one of the things I try to do. Is yeah. Because yeah, you've got you've to provide both. You've got to provide the encouragement, but also say, great, now let's do better. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, now, it's the poets you write that finally tipped you here. Uh, when you finally become convinced that, Christianity is plausible and then that it's true, what do you do about it? Do, do, you, do you just say, I'm a Christian, or do you join a community? Do you look to the sacraments? I'm curious how you understood what you were, how you're going to follow through on this. Well, I became a, a Christian really in a very sort of mere Christian evangelical context. Yeah. Um, I've mentored, um, as I recount much more fully in my memoir, by my fencing coach, actually, who is evangelical. And so I did the typical evangelical sinner's prayer and started trying to read the Bible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fortunately, my, my coach encouraged me, says, you know, you really need to go to church. And, yeah. Okay. So I actually started attending church, not I, I didn't actually at that point have any understanding of ecclesiology or the sacraments. Um, right. Like I said, coming from a very, you know, mere Christian evangelical conversion experience. Sure, sure. Um, but I did end up going to a um, an Episcopal church that um, was, at least at that time, um, fairly conservative um, mm -hmm. in the Anglo-Catholic tradition. Um, and that's where I started, you know, learning about, oh, this is what the church is. I was baptized um, and, you know, began to be discipled and really was discipled quite well, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, that's part of how I became a Catholic. <laughs> I kept learning, and I kept, um, you know, finding out, because, you know, the Episcopal Church you know, does, you know, have the sacraments. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's all kind of incomplete. The theology is not quite fully articulated. It's all 
almost, but not all the way. Mm-hmm. And I kept discovering that the Catholics were consistent. The Catholics were thorough. The Catholics made a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. And I kept moving inch by inch closer to the Catholic point of view on pretty much everything as I discovered how they articulated, you know, pro-life views, um, views about the family, views about the body, views about the nature of the church, um, all the while trying to dig in my toes and say, oh, yeah, but I'm not actually a Catholic. I don't actually want to be a Catholic. I just happen to agree with them on 99.9% of these things, but I'm not a Catholic. Right, <laughs> and, and, and why, what was it about becoming a Catholic, or, or what was it about Catholicism that you thought was distasteful or, you know, as much as you could admire within it, it, you just didn't want to, that's not a club you wanted to join. Well, pretty much it came down to the question of obedience. I frankly liked being able to call the shots. Um, I mean, the thing about being an Episcopalian, about being an Anglican, is that you get to decide what beliefs of the church apply to you. Um, I mean, take, to take one example, for instance, um, I was very consistent in going to church on Sundays, and I took actually quite a lot of spiritual pride in it in retrospect. I always, I never skip church. No, yeah. no, no, not me. Well, you know, then you become a Catholic, and it's an obligation. So <laughs> no more spiritual pride. It's like you're just doing your duty. Um, it's just very salutary, but hard to take. Yeah, uh, and that's the sort of thing that I just I liked being able to be the one who decides, mm-hmm. and that for me was the final piece. I actually at one point I used to say evening prayer um, uh, twice a week in the in the chapel at my old church, and I used to skip the Magnificat, um, and hmm. I couldn't quite articulate why until after I became a Catholic, and I realized I was skipping the Magnificat because I didn't want to echo Mary's words because she is obedient. <laughs> wow. She is the model of obedience. Um, and somehow intuitively I was rebelling against Mary because Mary is, it was everything I kind of didn't want to be. Um, and then I finally realized that that was what I was rebelling against. And of course, once I realized it, I thought, well, that's no good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's rightful authority, I've got to obey it. You don't like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was, that was really the, the sticking point for me. So the 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 picture of the obedient uh, the Blessed Virgin was not something that appealed to you to begin with. No, because it's challenging. It really challenged me um, in my little protected bubble of, well, you know, I've got things all sorted. Yeah. I know what it is to be a Christian. Yeah. God's not going to expect anything else of me. You know, well... Maybe not. Maybe God's going to call me to something greater. Maybe he's going to put more demands in me and stretch me, and that's hard. <laughs> Holly, hold it there. We'll come back continue conversation. Dr. Holly Ordway, my guest, her story is told in the uh, new volume by published by EWTN and forwarded by uh, Marcus Grodi. From Atheism to Catholicism, Nine Converts Explain Their Journey Home. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Dr. Holly Ordway. She's the author of uh, Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms, published by Ignatius. Uh, Her story, though, is also uh, given a a brief version in the book 
from atheism to Catholicism, and uh, we're talking about her well being raised in a practically atheistic home and then uh, finding her uh, moving towards belief in God, then specifically faith in Christ, and then eventually coming into full communion with his church. When you were uh, an Anglo-Catholic, uh, did anybody give you a hard time when you finally decided to pope? Unfortunately, not really. And okay. I'm very grateful. God has been very good to me, and I don't take it for granted by any means, because yeah. I, I know I have other friends who had to leave jobs, um, who've had difficulty with family members. And I think God was particularly merciful because I actually made my decision um, after I had moved away from California and said goodbye to my church family at my Episcopal church because I'd taken this new job at Houston Baptist University. Mm-hmm. And so it really was in that middle period. I was spending the summer in Oxford, um, and I literally had no home. I had you know, sold my house in California, hadn't yet moved into my apartment in Houston, hadn't yet chosen a new um, church to go to in Houston. Um, and I'm grateful for that because I really liked my church in California. Yeah, and yeah. I think that had I stayed, I would have been tempted to make small accommodations as in retrospect, I already was accepting this liberal impulse or, you know, not really speaking the truth here, mm-hmm. kind of letting doctrine slide. I, I, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to leave that. And then I started thinking, well, where am I going to go? And having to actually look with clear eyes at what are my options for Episcopal churches and yeah. recognize, well, pick your heresy. Yeah, it, a it, it's a tough place to be in America right now, right? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Have, I mean, they or, or you had an ordained bishop, right? You had an ordained bishop, Shelby Spong, who denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus, denied the virgin birth, denied the inspiration of Scripture. And you have a, a, a home, active homosexual who was ordained a bishop. It's got to be tough to be part of a community that that is doing that. Yeah, and I was able to ignore that in my small church because I just sort of closed my ears and said, okay, I'm not going to think about what's happening in the larger Episcopal right, church. But, right. you know, and then there was a possibility there the breakaway Anglican churches, for instance. But that really just brought home this question of authority. Exactly who decides? Right. Um, so, for instance, one of the big things for me was women priests and women bishops. Mm-hmm. I had actually come independently as a Protestant to the realization that women cannot be priests. I see. Um, mm-hmm. That it's just not possible. Uh, and and yet here were women priests in the Church of England, in the Episcopal Church, and apart from anything else, how is it that they just get to decide after 2,000 years, oh, Jesus was wrong, yeah. you know, we've got it yeah. right, yeah. we can decide. And if I don't agree with that authority, exactly how can I be in this church where I'm picking and choosing my acceptance of authority? That's not how authority works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And that really pushed me to think about the church. Yeah. Was the Anglican ordinariate available to you? Uh, actually, it was. I was received through the ordinariate. Okay. Um, okay. I didn't know that. I was actually I was received at Our Lady of Walsingham in Houston, uh, the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. Yeah. Um, and I've actually come to really to appreciate the ordinariate a lot um, in the last few years um, and, and learning more about it both in England and in the U.S., um, and I'm grateful you really helped me kind of make the transition a little bit a little bit more easily. Yeah, that's great. 
You know, I didn't ask uh, a question I, I should have asked early on, and that is, as a literary scholar, did you have any, uh, what did you think of the Gospels as literature, as history? What, 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 what did you think the Gospels were? Well, I had managed to avoid really thinking about them, primarily. <laughs> that was the first thing. Um, <laughs> and insofar as I thought about them, I thought, oh, yeah, just, you know, sort of vaguely mythic literary texts that I'm not really going to even look at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pretty much didn't think about them. And I wasn't even quite clear who the authors were or when they were written or how many there were. It was really kind of shameful. Um, I didn't want to think <laughs> about it, frankly. When I read them for the first time, seriously, as an atheist, um, I recognized immediately as a literary critic that these were historical narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I think, worth noting because I – that didn't mean I thought they were true. Because right. you can read historical narratives that are full of errors. Right, right. But one thing that was not an option for me, I was very clear that this is not legend. This is not folktale. This is not fable. As somebody who studied those forms mm-hmm. professionally, I could recognize that's not what the Gospels are. Yeah. They're history, and they're either true or they're false or there's some mix of the two, but whatever they are, I have to take them seriously as historical documents. Mm-hmm. And were they, uh, was that helpful? Uh, I would think that would be helpful in drawing you closer to Christ and his church then, because it gives you documents that you, know, that you can actually go to. It was. It was very helpful because I had to confront the claims there. Like, okay, well, did this actually happen? Yeah. And I was really helped by um, N.T. Wright's um, book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Yeah, great, um, great book. volume, extremely long. Yeah. And he's really exhaustive in his working through of the historical case, mm-hmm. um, and that was really helpful to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a, a magnificent, magnificent book. Uh, it, it, is, it is demanding, though, as you say. I mean, he, he, if, if, you don't, yeah. if you don't like detail, you're going to have a tough time with the book. Uh, so t- tell me then about being a Catholic. Uh, Houston Baptist University, you're a Catholic there. Uh, I know Baylor has a lot of Catholics working as well, and that has a, a Baptist uh, background. Uh, it's, it sounds as though there's a, a new openness, uh, at least among some of these uh, Baptist institutions, to working with Catholics. Yeah, I'm really grateful um, for HBU. Yeah. They, they really, I think from the beginning, actually, have taken a, a really ecumenical approach. There's actually quite a lot of Catholic faculty, and indeed Catholic um, administrators, and there are Eastern Orthodox faculty, yeah. um, there are Protestants of all different um, denominations. And it, it really, they, they've taken the approach of kind of centering on you know, more or less the Apostles' Creed and, and really allowing space for, you know, for Catholics and Orthodox um, in, in the faculty. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm really grateful. Um, it's a good place to work. Yeah. And indeed, the, the apologetics faculty in particular. I mean, my colleague Michael Ward is a Catholic. Yeah. Um, and so we have a good Catholic representation on our apologetics faculty. Yeah, yeah. I've, I don't think I've ever interviewed him, but I know I've seen a lecture series that he did. Uh, and uh, so this is a, this is a, how do you, in a, I mean, 50 years ago, that would have been impossible, uh, I think, for Catholics to, and Baptists to work together, especially in the South. 
how, how do you read that in terms of the future for Catholic evangelical relations in America? I think it's hopeful. Because um, one of the things I like about HBU is that they don't try to make us affirm some sort of, you know, we all really agree and we're right. just going to talk about it. No, we actually genuinely disagree right. on a lot of points. <laughs> right, um, right. I mean, even the evangelicals, we've got, you know, Calvinists and we've got people who are very anti-Calvinist mm-hmm. in the same faculty. So HB is willing to acknowledge that um, and say, but we have a larger project for the kingdom and I think that's the healthy way to do ecumenism, where you don't pretend you don't have differences. You acknowledge the differences right. and say, let's at least communicate. Let's communicate graciously. Let's know what our, what our real, you know, what can we do together? Um, and for instance, teaching in this program is I, it's wonderful to be a Catholic teaching in an ecumenical program, mm-hmm. because I have many students who have never actually got help them had the opportunity to talk with an educated Catholic who knows why he or she believes what we believe. Um, and just to have that opportunity to dispel some of the you know, myths and misunderstandings that, that many Protestants have, you know, just to have them say, oh, wow, okay, I'm not a Catholic, but I can understand that you love Jesus too. Right. That's a huge step it is. In, you know, in, in, in the larger project. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, Christopher Derrick and then more recently Joseph Pierce have written about C.S. Lewis and the Church of Rome. You loved Lewis. Uh, would he have been a Catholic had he lived? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Um, I know it's speculative, you know, I but I, I like to ask people the question, it, since especially Catholics who have come from evangelicalism. Yeah, it's, you know, I... He might not have. He might not have because mm-hmm. he did have some pretty strong anti-Catholic tendencies from his from his childhood, right. and he did. I think he was really pushing back. I think he was resisting, kind of clearly looking at some of the Catholic doctrines for what they are. But I also think that he was able to stay where he was in the Church of England because he. Frankly, because he died when he did, mm-hmm. um, he was able to be consistent as an Orthodox Christian in the Church of England. But for instance, he believed that women could not be priests. Right. I'm mean, really clear on that. Right. Uh, I think that the decision of the Church of England to ordain women as priests would have been a big, big push for him toward Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he might have, depending on how long. Um, how long he lived, or for instance, you know, the, the Church of England's approach to um, sexuality mm-hmm. which has weakened um, very much. So I think there are some. If, if he were in the Church of England now, I think he'd be very, very hard pressed to stay there. <laughs> yeah. Frankly, yeah, I don't. It'd be, it'd be incredible if if he could have remained there to this day. Of course, he died in 1963, and that that's about the time I think that um, Bishop. Uh, Robinson had published his book *Honest to God*, and and more pro- liberal Protestantism was uh, being popularly published, and Anglicanism was beginning to adopt some of it. And I know he he kind of resisted that too, but he, again, he passed on before passed from this world before yeah. he, he really had a chance to uh, get into those battles. And he didn't like he didn't especially well, like those right. battles either. Yeah, he, he really, I mean, he did, uh, he, he really resisted the liberalizing tendency. In one of his lectures, um, one of his essays, he actually makes the point 
that liberal, the liberal um, tendency in the Church of England, he says very directly, is going to make people either atheists or Roman Catholics. <laughs> They're not going to stay in the Church of England. Yeah. Um, so what do you say? I <laughs> Yeah. I think he saw very clearly that his own gift was for mere Christianity, and he really held to that as his particular charism. That was his gift and calling, and he was going to live it out to the end. So, being Catholic now, is it the best thing that's happened to you? Yes, it is, and I find out every day more and more how that's the case. All right. Holly, thank you very much. We'll talk again. My pleasure. (laughs) Dr. Holly Ordway, story is told in From Atheism to Catholicism.